Miles. 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 Uh-huh. Miles. Guess what week it is? New Year's? Well, that too, yeah. But it's cable week. <sighs> Again? We just did a cable episode. I mean, we just did a cable spotlight. Now he's in continuity, and you know what that means? Pouches for everyone? It means it's only a matter of time before we get to my very favorite dubious 90s arc. You don't mean... Executioner song! Jay... Miles, it's got everything. Clones, retcons, time travel, the moon, sinister, more Summer's Family nonsense than almost any other individual story, and the legacy virus. The... wait, that's not right. The legacy virus was later. No, the legacy virus first shows up in Executioner's song. It doesn't have a name yet, but that's how it ends up on Earth. Is it what Strife shoots Xavier with? I thought that was something else. No, no, no. That virus is a whole other thing. The legacy virus is just in a test tube. So how does it end up out of a test tube? Oh, uh, Strife swaps to Sinister in exchange for Scott and Jean. What does Strife want with Scott and Jean? Mostly to yell at them and force feed them baby food. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 141 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And although we're recording this in mid-December 2016, welcome, I suppose, to the new year. I hope it's better than the last one. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like we're speeding abruptly towards Earth 811 at this point. Yeah, well, there is that. But right now, what we're speeding toward in the podcast is the 90s 90s that ever did 90s. And so let's talk about the first appearance of Cable. What? Now, we set up Cable a bit in the last episode where we talked to Dennis Hopeless about sort of Cable in general, what works for us, what doesn't, what we really like about the character. This time, we're going to get specific and look at the issues of New Mutants where he made his debut. And that's number 86 through 89. Now, it's not just Cable himself making his debut. It's Rob Liefeld making his debut as the regular artist on New Mutants. Man, so I really tried to go into this open-minded. The first time I read through it, I was super grumpy about it. You had told me about how this is what ruins everything. (laughs) And this time, there were so many things I really disliked my first time reading that I liked and had a lot more respect for and a lot more interest in. This time through, reading them more analytically in context of the podcast, I was really hoping that would be the case here. It was not. And, you know, Cable as a concept, once Cable meets up with the New Mutants, I mean, I may not like the direction that the book takes, but I think a lot of that is just sort of residual bitterness from when I was a kid. I mean, New Mutants was my ex-book. That was my jam. These were the characters that I identified with and had crushes on and sometimes identified with and had crushes on simultaneously. Wow, that's very narcissistic of you. I suppose it is. And, you know, once Cable shows up and once the New Mutants become more militaristic, it just turns into a different comic book, first metaphorically, and then not that long thereafter, very literally, as New Mutants is replaced with X-Force. So we're still in New Mutants now, but they've gone through a lot of recent changes. Let's look back quickly at the status quo and where we're starting from. Previously on New Mutants. Since splitting with Magneto after Inferno, when he went supervillain, The team has been living on ship with X-Factor and X-Factor's wards, who are, I believe, Boom Boom, Rusty Skids, and Richter. Yeah, and in fact, those teams have kind of merged. So in addition to Boom Boom, Rusty Skids, and Richter, we also have from the New Mutant side, Cannonball, Mirage, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, and Warlock, four of the original New Mutants, plus Warlock. Bringing us up to, once again, nine New Mutants. 
However, there are not going to be that many running around in this story. Rusty and Skids have been arrested by Freedom Force, the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, now working for the government for starting fires and causing carnage. These were not actually crimes they committed. These were crimes committed by Danielle Moonstar as a Valkyrie while possessed by Hela, which led the rest of the new mutants to take off for Asgard. And indeed, they were able to defeat Hela and rescue Mirage, at least to a degree, but not before becoming mostly very seriously injured and or seemingly killed. Back on Earth, Rusty and Skids made an accidental prison break while trying to prevent the Vulture from doing the same, and are currently on the lam. So that's the status quo we have as we go into, I guess what I would consider to be the third major era of New Mutants. I mean, we still have the same writer that began the second major era, Louise Simonson, but Liefeld's art just changes everything about this book, both the look of it, obviously, but also very much the feel, the themes, the you know tendencies of where the plot's going to go. And Liefeld as artist shifts the narrative tone and the balance of narrative power in the book. What we had in the X line until around now was a very, very, very writer and editor driven line. Um, we had basically Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson who were in the center of absolutely everything. And now we've got, at least on New Mutants, this young incoming sort of upstart artist who wrests away a lot of that control. And the stories that come out of this are very, very, very different. We've talked in context of Claremont's collaboration of books like the first Wolverine miniseries, um, stuff like the Demon Bear Saga, how significantly an artist and a writer working in tandem can influence the tone and shape of a story. And I think New Mutants at this point is what you get when you have an artist and a writer working dissonantly. You know, from what I understand, from what I've read, uh, Louise Simonson does her best to make it very easy for any artist to work with her. She's famous for just being an incredibly nice, considerate writer. But I think it's really less an issue of any kind of, you know, conflict, at least initially, and more an issue of maybe incompatibility. Yeah, it's not even so much about conflict as it is about creative fusion and creative much as I dislike the word synergy. And here, this feels like a book whose parts are, you know, just tugging at one another. It's frustrating, and it lacks a lot of the coherence we saw with Simonson and, for instance, Blevins, who were much, much better in sync. Now, all of that said, this is our perspective here in 2016, and in one case, my perspective as someone who was shaking his tiny fist at the heavens back in the early 90s. Aww. But, but at the time, Rob Liefeld's art People were in love with it between Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee. I mean, this was an artistic renaissance at Marvel, and people were going crazy over it. They, they thought it was amazing. They thought it really energized books. And for a book like New Mutants, whose sales had been declining like over the course of the Asgardian adventure and stuff like that, this was a real shot in the arm. All of a sudden, New Mutants was selling incredibly well. That's so weird to me, because I know that technically Liefeld and Lee are the same school of art. And I know style is a big driving point on this, but... The difference in their flexibility and their storytelling capabilities at this point. And again, this is a very young, very inexperienced Liefeld. Yeah, he was, I um, mean, barely out of his teens at this point, right? Yeah, people love to hate him as an artist. But one of the things that you will see over the course of the next many years here is him growing and developing a lot as a comics artist. And here he still seems very green to me. And I think part of the problem now with coming to this is that before, you know, I was reading it binge reading New Mutants with your biases very fresh in my head. Now I'm reading it as a comics editor and looking at the art and critic and looking at this stuff critically. And it just, this is not someone I can conceive hiring. 
Well, it seemed to definitely work, and I can see some of the appeal. I mean, the amount of sheer enthusiasm and energy. Yeah, there's a lot of energy. There's almost as much energy as hair. There's a lot of hair as well, There's so much hair. But I guess what I'm saying is, as much as, you know, this was not something that I liked, and, you know, it's not really my style now either, I get the appeal. I can see why, for a lot of people, this was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen on page. So I do want to bear that in mind as we go through this, because, you know, I always try to be as positive as possible about comics, and there's definitely a lot of good to be found here amid the not-so-good. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fun, and one thing that I will absolutely and unquestionably say for Liefeld, and I think it's something he gets better at as he goes into X-Force, again, I feel like we're to some extent watching him get his sea legs on an ongoing here, is energy. Like, story notwithstanding, looking at Liefeld's better spreads, his foibles don't matter. Like, I don't care if there are backgrounds, because what's going on in the foreground is so fun and so cool and so energetic. It's immersive, it draws the eye, it's explosive, it's everything is spectacular. And... That's a lot of fun to read. I think part of my quibble with Liefeld over the years is largely actually an editorial quibble. And it's with the fact that I think a lot of the time, I mean, with New Mutants, it's a radical directional shift from a book that was more character centric in ways that I really liked. It feels like a really palpable loss. But I think historically also, he's largely been paired with really odd choices of properties like I would not put Rob Liefeld on the Teenage Feelingsy book. Apparently, uh, there was some talk around the same time of him doing Alpha Flight instead, which would have been very interesting. Supposedly, Cable was a character who, if he didn't go with New Mutants, was going to be an Alpha Flight instead. Interesting. Yeah, so... Yeah, there's a sort of what-if to consider. I love the idea of what-if comics being not, you know, what if Spider-Man became Phoenix or whatever, but what if Rob Liefeld drew Alpha Flight instead of New Mutants? Yeah. That would be kind of amazing. That's sort of what the forever line was, although that was more writers than artists. Yeah, true, true. So, yeah, New Mutants number 86 through 89. So, Cable shows up very briefly at the end of New Mutants 86, although that is Liefeld's first full issue of his ongoing run. He's really just in the next issue tease, isn't he? Yeah. Now, 87 is the big one, and 87, that was a catch back in the early 90s. Like, when I was trying to collect New Mutants, when I was trying to get everything I could from that series, I actually had to resort to a second printing of New Mutants number 87, which has a gold background on the cover instead of red, that I found in a multi-pack of comics that was blister-packed in the checkout aisle of a Walmart. That is where I got my copy. To be fair, you were also buying comics in Sarasota, and at that time, the options were slim. It's true. I mean, there was Time Machine 2, and there was Helen's Books, and Time Machine 2 was kind of far, and Helen's Books uh, didn't really get along with the guy that ran. Shout out to Russ. He was an asshole. (laughs) I hope he's not a listener. That would be really awkward. You know, if he was a listener, I feel okay about castigating him on air for being really creepy to teenage girls who came into his store. You know, that's entirely That was entirely uncool, and that is largely why I did not buy issues until I went to college and found a very different comic store in a very different state. Oh, well, well, damn it, Russ. Right. (laughs) But regardless, this run of issues, like even back then, even back in the early 90s, we knew that this was a big deal because this was the run of New Mutants that was the very clear beginning of X-Force. We're going to follow through these issues and we're going to follow the characters by sort of groups, by who's doing what. And I think we're going to start with Rusty and Skids and their stupid, stupid adventures. Yeah. Now, we've talked before about how Rusty and Skids, as much as they've been long-running characters in X-Factor for the most part, they've never really had a chance to shine or get individual personalities, Rusty especially. And even though this is probably the most central story that they were ever in, like the most focal story for the two of them, it's still not really so much about who they are so much as about the circumstances surrounding them. 
and the circumstances surrounding them is that the two of them, and especially Rusty, are constitutionally incapable of doing anything without coming off like supervillains. Rusty probably tries to pee and ends up accidentally torching like an orphanage. It's ridiculous. It's like, okay, so Psychonauts. Uh, yes. You remember the Lungfishopolis level? Right, where, you know, your character is a giant monster going through a city of lungfish, of and, tiny lungfish. And no matter what you do, you're trying to save people, and it's suddenly like, he's crushed the orphanage! The puppy orphanage! He's immune to bullets and love. That is one of my favorite levels and one of my favorite games of all time. Yeah, so basically that's Rusty's life. It's basically a series of pratfalls into supervillainy by accident. And that's what this is. This is him trying to keep people safe and stop the vulture and instead like breaking out of jail and setting guard towers on fire. So a little bit of context for this. During this era, there was a publisher-wide crossover going on called Acts of Vengeance. Now, you may remember that the Psylocke story where Psylocke becomes a ninja was part of that crossover as well. It was all about supervillains attacking different superheroes than the ones they normally fight to sort of catch them off guard. Was Stiltman involved in Acts of Vengeance? I, I don't know. I hope so. Me too. I want good things for Stiltman. <laughs> good old Stiltman. I'm just thinking of a good old Charlie Brown kind of thing, except a Stiltman instead. Thank God for Stiltman. <laughs> yup. Uh, a, a Charlie Brown Christmas, a Stiltman Christmas with the jazzy music in the background. Oh, no, I was I was just quoting an issue of Daredevil where it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say four words that have never been put together in this order before. Thank God for Stiltman. Was that in the Mark Wade run? Yeah. So good. It's so the one good. where he and, he and um, Doc Ock's Spider-Man... Our, our Doc Ock Spider-Man is trying to take him down because he thinks Daredevil has gone gone villain. And Matt has no idea that he's not Peter and is trying to talk him down. But then Stiltman attacks and they team up to fight him and, and are able to resolve their differences. <laughs> and thus, thank God for Stiltman. And thus, thank God for Stiltman. Well, anyway, one of the characters that was involved in Acts of Vengeance is the Vulture. He's sent to prison where he finds a set of new robot Vulture wings and eventually comes to realize after he breaks out that this was a gift from the people involved in Acts of Vengeance who wanted him to go attack Speedball. I think at the time he might have been one of the New Warriors, or maybe this was before the New Warriors. I don't know, but man, first of all, the Vulture is super old. He is. And second, I just imagine him talking and like interacting with the world like the Terror from the Tick Live Action series. Oh, absolutely. He totally does. Yeah, like he is extra old. And it's a joke, but it's also something he brings up regularly and he's so cranky and this is this is one of those Liefeld doing a really good job bits because Liefeld's vulture I almost said Liefeld's terror is just so gnarled and kind of melty and grouchy looking and it's great he's I also love him he's also squinting all the time which yes. I kind of like that too I actually I love that I think that works really well well anyway the vulture's been imprisoned and Rusty and Skids have been imprisoned you know under these false pretenses of having started the fire that really Mirage's demon form did and the vulture decides that he is not going to have any of this speedball bullshit. He's been doing this since you were in diapers, young man. And in his day, you had to fly uphill both ways in waist deep Spider-Man to, you know, dangle a girl from a rooftop. So, no, you know what he's going to do? He's going to bust out of this prison and he's going to go free Nitro, who is an entirely different supervillain. Nitro is a villain whose power is to explode. He was actually part of what happened at the beginning of Civil War when that elementary school got blown up and it was the New Warriors' fault. So, hey, there's another speedball connection. Whoops. And oh, and that was when speedball became penance, right? Oh, that story. <laughs> and his cat became the penitent puss who had his own, like, spikes on the inside armor. Aww. It was a dark time in comics. We took our cat out into the snow for the first time today, by the way. I'm, I'm going to go on a cat aside because it was really charming. I'll put a picture of her in the as mentioned. It was it was pretty delightful. She, she was she was more interested in the snow than I expected her to be. We, we walk her on a leash because she is not competent enough to be given free reign. 
<laughs> well done, Bella. Yeah, she tries. Yep. So Rusty was also in this prison and he tries to stop the vultures. The vulture escapes, aided by skids. And like you were saying earlier, Jay, it just comes off like he was helping the vulture escape. Yeah, he just knocks it down and blows up a guard tower. Rusty is really bad at being hero. So the vulture does successfully escape this prison and he goes to find the Tinkerer. Now, the Tinkerer is a villain that he also shared the spotlight with in Amazing Spider-Man number two, the first page of which the cover to New Mutants 86 is an homage to. Okay. Diagram that sentence, I dare you. I could. You totally could. That's true. And so he does, in fact, succeed in finding the Tinkerer, who explains to him that, you know what, he actually got instructions from a face that appeared on his TV to make the wings for the vulture, smuggle them into prison, and tell him that he had to go after Speedball. You may recall Loki having showed up to step out of Apocalypse's TV last time we talked about Acts of Vengeance and Continuity. I assume this is the same deal. Do we actually want to talk about Acts of Vengeance context much? Can we just say that a Vulture again decides he will have none of this nonsense and he's just going to keep going after Nitro? In the context of this story, yes. Yes, we like, can absolutely I just, say I just, that. I feel like none of this is actually going to matter very much. Nope. And so the Vulture takes the Tinkerer with him to, you know, help him get Nitro out of this canister to the courthouse where Nitro's trial is currently going on. You mentioned that you think the Vulture talks like the Terror, so let me see what I can do here. He thinks that I have nothing better to do than fight a bouncing neophyte like Speedball? Where's the villainy in that? Where's the prestige? Where's the vengeance? But he'll learn you can't judge a man's potential for destruction by the color of his hair or the lack of it. I'll show him vengeance and villainy beyond his wildest dreams. I am the Vulture. I prey on the dead. Is his primary defense also projectile vomiting? Because that is an actual vulture thing, and it's pretty intense. And maybe he can poop on his own feet when it gets hot to keep them cool. You guys, vultures are amazing. They are the best birds. <laughs> no, actually, cassowaries are the best birds, and I'm only saying that because they're the ones I'm most afraid of and so want to curry favor with. Yeah, you know, when the cassowary overlords take over, you want to make sure you're on the good side. My first alliance is to the cephalopods. Mm, legit. Yeah, but no, actually, vultures are really big. Vultures are serious birds. Don't fuck around with vultures. Well, yeah, and I, I kind of feel they'll like... They'll throw up at you real hard. I feel like that's why the vulture chose vultures as his identity. I mean, he has wings. He could be anything. He could be like Sam Wilson the Falcon. But no, he's the vulture. But we digress, like, even more than usual, I think. It's been a long year, okay? It surely has. Look, this is technically our first episode of 2017. Well, I mean, it could be worse. We could be Rusty Collins, who, as the Vulture is attempting to free Nitro, is being shot at by the cops along with skids. And so they go and uh, carjack a car. They throw a guy out of it and drive to go stop the Vulture because their plan is that when they do so, they'll be hailed as heroes. They'll have a chance to talk to the news. And at that point, they can inform the world what they found out, which is that Freedom Force still has those infants who were kidnapped in Inferno and is planning to do nefarious things with them instead of returning them to their parents. This is their entire plan. And I got to say, it seems like a solid plan. First of all, I'm very impressed with that segue. You handled that well. Thank you. Second, no, no, this plan is utter shit. First of all, they are coming across as supervillains. There's going to be an APB put out for a kid who can set fires and just broke out of prison and then hijacked a car running around with, you know, one of the more nefarious, if elderly, supervillains. There will probably be lethal force if necessary orders. Reporters aren't going to fucking talk to him. And we already know that Freedom Force is manipulating the spin on all of this. Freedom Force isn't going to let reporters get to them either. And they have helicopters. They don't just have a car and, like, dumb teenager intentions. They're so naively optimistic. And as someone who often is myself, I, I can sympathize. Yeah, but you have the advantage of not being dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> oh, poor Rusty Collins. 
he brought this one on himself. <laughs> Rusty Collins has been dealt a lot of bad hands, but this one is all him. Now, speaking of characters who have been dealt bad hands, Skids is with him. Now, Skids is a former Morlock. She used to live underground with the sort of mutant outcasts led by Callisto. And she's never really been big on humanity. Now, we haven't seen much of that over the last few years while she's been with X-Factor and the New Mutants. But it's important to remember that that's part of her origin because of her attitude toward this whole thing now. Let the vulture prey on other humans and good riddance. We saved humans time and again. And how do they repay us? They imprison us. They kidnap us. I mean, I can understand her being bitter, you know? She's not wrong. I mean, she's right, but for the wrong reasons. Like, they should not go after the vulture. That is correct. So they arrive at the courthouse just as the vulture is carrying off Nitro's containment capsule thing. Yeah, Nitro is in a canister, heavily sedated. He's basically in a big, what reminds me of like the pneumatic tube capsules from Banks. But he is sedated, and so to get him out, the vulture not only has to get through the canister, but he has to let out the gas. Now, this is where it gets kind of weird in terms of writing and art, because Rusty and Skids are in this truck, right, that they hijacked, and they arrive at the courthouse, and what the dialogue tells us is that some of the protesters have started to panic from the vulture's attack and are running in front of the truck, and thus they swerve and crash. What we see on page is their truck being shot at by cops and then just crashing into a wall. I get the impression here that when Rob Liefeld received Louise Simonson's, uh, well, not script, because that's not how Marvel does it, but her kind of plot summary thing. Well, just we kinda... don't know exactly what format they were working in. That's something that varied significantly between creative teams and how much dialogue was there to begin with and how much detail was there to begin with varied a lot. It's also possible that she was dialoguing from his pencils and what would end up being cops looked like protesters at that point or looked indistinct enough for it to be uncertain. Basically, there are a lot of non-nefarious ways that that mix-up could have happened. But we do see a lot of examples of this within these issues, which is the dialogue seeming to go around itself in circles a little bit to justify what's going on on the page. And it takes you out of it a little, you know? Yeah, there's a lot in here that feels kind of dashed off and weird. But ultimately, Nitro is freed and he Okay, is... wait, wait, wait. We got to talk about this dude's look because goddamn. Nitro is wearing a majestic purple costume. He has long, flowing white locks and he celebrates his freedom by promptly exploding. Skids is able to contain the explosion in her blast field, but it almost kills her. And almost kills him as well, actually. And when he tries to explode again, he actually dissipates. Freedom Force shows up and, surprise, surprise, shockingly arrests Rusty and Skids. Who saw that coming? Who could conceivably have predicted that as the outcome of Rusty setting shit on fire and stealing a police car? Oh, Rusty, you poor dear. Like, I am all for the breaking out. That's fine. That's great. That's a good decision in his part. They're in a no-win position. I'm all for the civil disobedience. Immediately trying to go be superheroes and just assuming things will work out if their intentions are good, that is just dumb. That's not good reasoning. You know, break shit, but be judicious about it. Well, and it's especially a bad plan because one of the things Freedom Force has always excelled at is spin. And so when Crimson Commando comes out to explain what's going on, he looks like the big damn hero he wants the world to see. Yeah, he tells the press that Rusty and Skids teamed up with the Vulture to free Nitro, um, that they are evil mutants like the ones who killed Destiny and Stonewall. Hey, wait, Donald Pierce killed Stonewall. He's not a mutant. He's a robot that hates mutants. It's Freedom Force. They don't give a fuck. Yeah, well. But danger, even death, is the price of Freedom Force's vigilance. And Freedom Force will pay it gladly. Because we are America's heroes. And we serve you all. Oh, murder grandpas, you guys sure are jerks sometimes. Well, I think the murder grandpas actually believe in what they're doing. 
That's true. They're very good at convincing themselves of the rightness of their deeds. They're also those... jerks, but they are <laughs> sincere in their jerkiness. They're not just like, well, we use this to get out of a sentence. Let's see what we can do with that and who we can use it to mess with, which is kind of everyone else's stance. <laughs> so Rusty and Skids get taken to the hospital in a high security facility near Washington, D.C. Now, they keep Rusty kind of drugged and semi-conscious because of the danger of his powers. Skids, meanwhile, is just sort of bored. She's watching the news, getting more and more bitter at how their heroism was played as terrorism by the Freedom Force and by the press. And what she finds out is that a group called the MLF, that is the Mutant Liberation Front, not the Multilateral Force, has started setting off bombs, claiming responsibility for explosions. And the MLF's representative, who is a huge muscular guy in a metal suit that we only see from a Dr. Claw angle at this point, tells the authorities... For every day they remain in captivity, another false symbol of humanity's prosperity and liberty will be destroyed. So Mystique, who's currently leading Freedom Force, shows up to interrogate Rusty and Skids about this. Rusty and Skids insist that they have no idea who this weirdo is, but Mystique doesn't believe them and heavily implies that if Rusty and Skids don't cooperate, they'll eventually be killed. And that brings us, I think, to another group in mortal peril, the New Mutants. What have they been up to? So, yeah, the New Mutants are all still in Asgard and mostly beaten all to hell and or presumed dead because in the climax of their fight with Hela, the Tower of Odin blew up, like, right around them. Spoiler. They'll be okay. The injured are all brought to Odin's palace. Boom Boom, Warlock, and Hrimhari from outside, Cannonball, Richter, Mirage, and Wolfsbane from inside. And did you notice that Hrimhari's fur is brown? Hrimhari is a wolf prince, and his whole deal is he's a silver wolf. That's, like, half of his character. Maybe he's poorly lit or very muddy. It's possible. I'm going to assume he's just very muddy. And, yeah. And they don't really think to clean him up, you know? Well, he's a wolf prince. Are you going to argue with wolf prince if he wants to roll in the mud? He, he doesn't want to take a bath. He had a bath yesterday. He had a bath last crossover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in the meantime, Mirage, you know, she was the one kind of at the center of the terrible events that happened in Asgard. She's been freed of her demonic possession, but she feels awful about what happened. She thinks that she should have found a way to resist this possession, even though there was really no way for her to do so. This is another one of those awkward bits, because she says at one point very early on in this that she's no longer a Valkyrie, and then later on that she has a responsibility to things because she is a Valkyrie. And it's insinuated very briefly that her powers have been stripped away, although they later turn out to not have been with no back mention. There's some inconsistency in this arc. What there also is is an almost literal deus ex machina because the dying and or maybe dead new mutants are quickly healed by a magical potion that Hogan the Grim, one of the Warriors Three, brings in. And they're all totally fine. Everybody's okay and everything's great. And they decide they're going to head home, but unfortunately, Bifrost is shattered and Asgard is currently in the negative zone. So there may be some issues with that. Right. No Rainbow Bridge and this other dimension is in another other dimension. Whoops. So the New Mutants settle down and figure, well, damn, I guess this is where we're going to live now. I mean, I'd imagine some of them are happy about it. Sunspot always loved being in Asgard. Well, they all sit down to uh, celebrate this turn of events and feast. Since potions are the order of the day, uh, Tiwa's of the Wastes, that's Odin's great granddaddy who the New Mutants hung out with a little bit earlier in the storyline, sends one of his ice fairies with a potion that Carnilla the Norn Queen, the current main squeeze of Baldur the Brave, can use to reanimate all of her petrified subjects. I just realized that so much of what we say is completely impenetrable unless you are familiar with comics. I don't know. I think I covered the context pretty well in that. You know, Carnilla is the Norn Queen. She's hooking up with Baldur the Brave. They're doing it. Her subjects are petrified. Tiwaz, who is the grandfather of the main god and hangs out in the wastes, sent an ice fairy with a potion that reanimated them. You know, that's true. I, I don't think that could have been more concise and clear. Well done. I mean, there's only so far you can go back before it, you just have Jack Kirby at a drawing table. <laughs> 
It's like the twinkle in your daddy's eye, Jack Kirby at a drawing table. Back when your daddy was just a twinkle in Jack Kirby's eye. Wait. (laughs) Jack Kirby's all of our dads. Uh, So, yeah, they're all hanging out. And the New Mutants are heartened because the other thing that Tiwaz of the Waste sent was a trans-dimensional map, which shows the New Mutants how to get out of Asgard, you know, without having to deal with the Rainbow Bridge Bifrost or the traditional methods of, I guess, interdimensional travel. The New Mutants are going home. Well, all but one. Right, because as Mirage tells Wolfsbane... I can't go, Rain. I'm a new mutant, now and always, but I'm a Valkyrie, too. And Hela did terrible things to us and to Asgard. I have to stay, don't you see? And help right the wrongs she did here in our names. And she talks a bit to Cannonball as the new mutants are preparing to leave on a big boat that Warlock has turned into. I wish you'd come with us, Danny. It'll be tough leading the muties without you. It's no use, Sam. As much as I want to go home, honor binds me to Asgard. And. That's that. Daniel Moonstar Mirage, arguably the most central new mutant outside of maybe magic during the Simonson era, and certainly the one with the most seniority as a vocal character, is gone. She's not going to be a major character for a very, very, very long time, and she'll never be as major a character as she was in the New Mutants up until this point. That specific event, Mirage deciding to stay in Asgard, is more than any other single turning point on this book what feels like the beginning of the end. Yeah, I mean, this is where it turns into what will become X-Force, and a big part of that is Mirage not being part of it anymore. So Warlock turns into a giant sailing ship, and they make their way through the negative zone, um, have a brief skirmish with the Mindless Ones, and find themselves back in New York, where they find Ship, now a skyscraper. They agree it's nice, but it doesn't really feel like home to most of the New Mutants in the ways that it does for Boom Boom and Richter, who kind of started out there. Yeah, and we'll talk more about why Ship is a skyscraper in our next episode, which is going to be about X-Factor. Speaking of X-Factor, the New Mutants compare notes and touch base with X-Factor and talk about, you know, the Freedom Force and the MLF and what's going on. And X-Factor decides to jump in into the fray and uh, address the rusty issue by way of a strongly worded voicemail. Yeah, I mean, Cyclops just calls up Freedom Force and leaves a message with their secretary. And that's all X-Factor does. And that weirds me out so much. Because Rusty was the first person they ever took in, the first mutant they ever rescued back in X-Factor number one, you'd think they would do a little more. I mean, it's clear he was unjustly imprisoned. It's clear he's innocent. Okay, here's the thing. First of all, they may have figured out at this point that Rusty is going to get himself arrested again immediately, no matter what they do. Okay, valid. Second, we're talking about a team that A, was raised by Professor Xavier, and B, collectively thinks it's a great idea to bring a baby with them on missions. These are some people with really unconventional views on child endangerment. Or maybe they just gave up on Rusty ever developing a real personality. Yeah, maybe they know. Maybe they've just given up on a lot of things. X-Factor is having a difficult time. X-Factor is actually having a pretty good time, but I I think they're having a difficult time dealing with the world not falling apart right now. That's one thing that interests me, because if you look at the issues of X-Factor coming out simultaneous to this, like, they're all going around having a great time having dates in New York, like, while Rusty is unjustly imprisoned. Well, okay, Archangel's not. Archangel's brooding a whole lot, but again, But he gets dates out of the brooding. That's true, that's true. Just like Angel did, and Angel. I bring up Angel a lot on this show, don't I? It's such a great show. To each their own. (laughs) Fair. Meanwhile, the New Mutants themselves are settling back in. So Sunspot's working out in a tiny white Speedo. Uh, He's actually working out on a weight bench that is Warlock, like shaped as a weight bench. Okay, that is There's a lot going on there. You know, as much as we can give Rob Liefeld's art shit, that right there looks great and funny, and he's good at comedy sometimes. He did that one issue of X-Men with the uh, invasion in Australia. He's good at comedy, and he's good at Warlock. It's always interesting. You know, I talk about liking to see how different artists draw Warlock. 
And Warlock is a character who I think is actually better suited to Liefeld's art style than most, especially at this point. Yeah, I won't disagree. So they're all working out, trying to figure their stuff out. Sam is calling his mother and reassuring her that he's getting plenty to eat and being careful when Boom Boom comes in in a tiny and fancy dress and a new hairstyle and is really pissed off that no one notices. I assume they are distracted by the fact that she also appears to be levitating several inches off the ground. I mean, we don't want to belabor the point, but Rob Liefeld's feet, especially in this era, they're kind of weird. It's not the feet. No, no, no. These are perfectly adequately drawn feet for someone who is standing in fifth position on point, hovering slightly above ground. The issue with the feet here isn't their shape or structure. It's the fact that they're not on the ground. (laughs) Boom Boom's got many skills and apparently this is a new one. But no one mentions it. Maybe they think it's impolite or figure she's not noticing. Okay, this is obviously an art error, but I really like the idea of basically no prize rationalizing it as something that's actually happening in the story. Well, what this also is, is Boom Boom getting a very new look. Now, Rob Liefeld in his early character designs for the New Mutants mentioned that he wanted to change her style to make her less, you know, early 80s and more late 80s, early 90s. Because she's a character who's very plugged into fashion and very plugged into the idea of being now and cool, which I think is a good move. Yeah, so we're not going to see those cat's eye sunglasses anymore. Instead, we're going to see some big chunky green ones, kind of similar to the ones Jubilee has. We're not going to see, you know, the suspenders and the baggy pants anymore. Man, see, the thing is, I get that this is all character appropriate, but I love Boom Boom's original sense of fashion. I love it. And Boom Boom is really offended because Richter, who previously had a crush on her, seems to only have eyes for Wolfsbane now. He barely notices her new, uh, incredibly skimpy dress. I can't believe it. He didn't even notice my new dress. He doesn't know I'm alive anymore. Since we got back from Asgard, all he can see is that 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 goody two-shoes man-stealing red-headed werewolf. Or maybe, Boom Boom, all he can see is the fact that you're fucking levitating. Did you consider that, Tabitha? Levitating. (laughs) Floating off the ground. Come on. Well, since no one's uh, paying attention to the levitating mini-dress-clad Boom Boom, the rest of the New Mutants keep calling home. And for Wolfsbane, that means calling Moira McTaggart, her legal guardian and adoptive mother, who, as we know from what's going on in X-Men, has some weird stuff going on these days. Specifically, Moira has become both evil and sexy. Indeed she has, and the New Mutants all pick up on this as Rain talks to her, you know, talking about her wolf boyfriend and how exciting things have been. And Moira decides that no, this is absolutely inappropriate, Rain needs to be under a firmer hand, she needs to be in a school environment, and Moira is going to come pick her up immediately. Right, which sucks, and Rain is in tears. She runs away, turns into a wolf, and flees until Richter finds her, and the New Mutants talk to him, trying to figure out what to do to cheer her up. Bits and pieces of this arc feel very New Mutants, and this bit, the interpersonal drama, really, really does. Yeah, I mean, Rain Sinclair's always been one of my favorite characters in the book, and so much of it, when Rain's done right, is, you know, there's that innocence, there's that kindness, that quiet, but there's such intensity of emotion beneath it all, and when that bursts through the surface like it is right now, often when she's in wolf form, no surprise there, it's a great big metaphor, that's when I really think Rain is written as Rain. So Richter is comforting her, but he doesn't get far before evil sexy Mora shows up. She's landed in a helicopter. She insists not only that Rain has to come, but that Richter is a young reprobate. And Richter runs off in a tantrum and apparently disintegrates her helicopter. As one does. Now, speaking of things like disintegration, let's talk about the Mutant Liberation Front. Let's use them to lead into, you guessed it, Cable. Every time they say MLF, I cut straight to uh, Tom Lair's MLF lullaby, which is about the multilateral force, not the Mutant Liberation Front, probably, I think. I mean, Although I feel like the Mutant Liberation Front would also scare Brezhnev. <laughs> they scare me. 
So, yeah, the Mutant Liberation Front. Now, we saw them once before when they blew up a, an energy research facility, you know, to make a point about Rusty and Skids being freed. And they're blowing up another one right now. They kill everybody in the way to the interior, set a bomb and port away. But we should probably talk about who they are. Okay, so we've got this group of weirdos. We've got Wildside. Wildside can uh, cloud perceptions. And he also has amazing hair. It's like this great big triangle thing, kind of like Wolfsbane's new hair when she's in her transitional form. These guys wear a lot of like raccoon makeup, like big painted circles around their eyes. It's very clowny and peculiar. We've also got Reaper. Reaper can paralyze people with his scythe which the caption helpfully informs us is a flail. Again, with the inconsistency, we have a woman named Strobe who can burn through stuff. We have a woman named Thumbelina who can shrink. And I got to say, credit to Liefeld here, she actually has a different body type. Like, she's not super thin like most superheroines and supervillainesses are. So good job, Rob Liefeld. Tempo can alter the flow of time around people, but it makes her super tired. She's also got what may be the most important power for a character in the 90s, which is a super cool Bill Hall X-Men Fleer Ultra trading card. Man, that was one of my favorite cards. Like, it was just, I don't know, the, the background, there was just this great sense of weird distortion and motion, and I loved it. I love the Fleer Ultra X-Men cards. I have a full set. I mean, not all the holograms, because who has those? But, you know, the rest of them. You know who we don't love? Forearm. Oh, Forearm. So, Forearm, his name is spelled like F-O-R-E-A-R-M, like the front part of your arm. Guess what his power is? He has four arms, and the botched pun part of his name is what makes me angriest about him. That's totally fair. That just, it's like, you had one job. (laughs) You had four jobs, and they were arms, and your jobs were arms, and now I'm confused. The 90s. (laughs) And last, we have Zero, who is a guy in a white bodysuit that also covers his face with a black Zero on him. He can teleport them around. He's basically their taxi. And he's going to end up being a much bigger deal later in Excalibur and will actually get kind of interesting. Yeah, he becomes a pretty poignant figure, if I remember correctly. They teleport away just as Cable rushes in with his three foot wide shoulders, a scar on one eye and a glow in the other. One metal arm, the other wrapped in spiked bands, two guns on his back and a giant gun in his hands, a belt full of patches and canisters to demand. What happened, Sergeant? Terrorists. Big guy, four arms. Others. Who? I'm Cable. I tracked him here. Hope to stop him. Where are they, son? And then the whole place explodes. So that is our first glimpse of Cable ever. And he is so gruff and veterany and grizzled and gigantic armed and covered in weapons. Like, you know, we talked about how the 90s kind of starts in the Psylocke story that we covered where she becomes a ninja. In a lot of ways, the 90s really, really starts right here in this very page. With Cable. We cut away to the MLF heading back to their boss. Speaking of 90s guys, and this is where we catch our first glimpse of Cable's evil counterpart, the one, the only, the multi-bladed Strife. Strife with a Y. And if I spelled my name D-A-R-Y-A, I'd be crowned Miss America. (laughs) So if you're not familiar with the look of Strife, let me see if we can paint you a very sharp picture. So Strife is wearing silver full-body armor. Okay, that includes a helmet with a full face mask. Okay, he's got a big red cape. Okay. It's got six-inch spikes, or longer, sticking out of most of it, and blades in large parts, and it's all organized in such a way that he can't really move. If he raises his arms at all, he's going to impale himself through the head, and he's got two long vertical spikes coming down from the chin of his helmet, which would effectively prevent him from turning his head. 
I mean, I thought about this, actually. So my take is it's basically an armor versus spikes arms race. So, like, you know, he put a couple spikes on because he thought that would look cool. But then he was worried about cutting himself, so he put some armor on where the spikes would have hit. But then the armor sort of outshines the spikes, so now he needs some more spikes. It's kind of like when you're cutting your sideburns and you cut the left one a little too short, so you have to cut the right one a little more. But then that's a little too short, and you just go back and forth until you look like Strife. So I think I mentioned in the previous episode how deeply I love Strife as a comedic figure. Because he's so super serious and so, like, fixated on the idea of being as badass as possible. And his costume is so dumb. Like, Adam X has many similar trappings, but he's pretty fun. So he gets a pass on this. Strife, on the other hand, like, you drop Strife into any scenario and he's hilarious. What he does here is to talk about his new plan for the Mutant Liberation Front. So they've been blowing up these energy research facilities trying to get Rusty and Skids freed. What they're going to do now is just cut out the middleman and free Rusty and Skids themselves. But not everyone, because he's super pissed at Wildside. We find this out as he grabs Wildside by the throat, lifts him up, and throws him across the room. Exactly like Mr. Sinister did with Sabretooth the first time we met Mr. Sinister, which is kind of weird. Berating Wildside for letting himself get injured in their previous mission. Which is really weird, because Forearm was the one who got shot. I mean, Strife wasn't there. I guess he was just sort of guessing. Strife is easily confused. I mean, he's covered in metal spikes. I'd imagine, you know, that distracts you a little bit. That and the vengeance. And so that's exactly what happens. The Mutant Liberation Front, minus Wildside and for some reason Thumbelina, goes to break Rusty and Skids out of this facility. And guess who's there waiting for them? Ooh, ooh, is it Cable? It certainly is. And man, the panel where he finally attacks the Mutant Liberation Front after stalking them through the facility is, in my opinion, the most definitive 90s Cable panel of all. Even more than the quite literally face-to-face one? Yeah, well, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say this one's because even better. Because man-to-man and quite literally face-to-face. Because <laughs> their faces are the same. Yeah, with Cable and Strife later. But no, with this one, he is yelling, firing two Uzis right at the reader while yelling, NOW! I love this panel. I love this panel. It's ridiculous. It's peak Cable. Um, It also highlights some of the details of his costume, like that for some goddamn reason, he's got a desk bell on his belt. Well, you know, if he's away and you want service, then you don't want to wait a long time. You just, you, you ding his belt. If he's away from his belt. Maybe he took it off. Maybe when he goes somewhere, he leaves his belt so you can press the bell on it to summon him back. But how will he keep the pouches on? Oh, well, he's got extra pouches. He's got pouches elsewhere, too, like, you know, wrapped around his legs and stuff. Yeah, the pouch garters. He's also got a lot of canisters in his belt. That's where he keeps his stuff, his liquid stuff. So I feel like everyone kind of imagined a different thing in the pouches when they were reading the comics. And you can probably tell a lot about a person by what they pictured. Like, I always imagined they were full of, like, office supplies, <laughs> like paper clips and stuff. I watched a lot of 60s Batman when I got home from school. It was on reruns, and so I always figured it just had very, very specific gases and fluids and machines and electronics and stuff that would basically be available for whatever conflict he found himself in. Like, you know, cable anti-shark repellent or whatever. Is anti-shark repellent what you use to repel shark repellent? Well, so there's sharks and there's anti-sharks, and uh, when sharks and anti-sharks collide, they annihilate and explode and generate energy. Ah, and so sometimes you don't want to do that. Sometimes if you've already got a chain reaction going, you want to kind of have a control feature, and that's where the anti-shark repellent comes in. Exactly. Or do you use it to herd them toward the sharks? I mean, you have multiple options. It comes in handy a lot more than you would think. Cable's a prepared kind of guy. He's the ultimate soldier. So he is prepared, but he is not prepared enough to take down the MLF. They manage to take him down to melt his metal hand and um, tell Forearm to take his guns and shoot him. Which is weird, because the next time we see the MLF... They're off doing their own thing, and the next time we see Cable, he's in prison, so I guess Forearm just said, nah. That seems likely. Forearm said, you know, I prefer not to. 
And the MLF gets through to Rusty and Skids and basically says, so you want to join up with us or stay and get killed by the soldiers? And after some brief consideration, Rusty and Skids are like, yeah, fuck it. We'll come join up with you guys. And just like we saw Mirage breathe her last as a New Mutants protagonist. uh, You make it sound like she died. Well, for me, she did. I was sad. Oh, come on. She's going to come back. In fact, she's going to come back and join the MLF while on secret assignment from S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, but she'll have a dumb mask. But just like Mirage is no longer a main character in New Mutants, now Rusty and Skids aren't either. They never really got a chance to shine or be defined. We're basically just going to see them shuffled around between villain teams, except for Skids briefly being an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then fall into obscurity and or death. Yeah, I was going to say the critical difference is that, like, we'll miss Mirage. And (sighs) Rusty and Skids, we will miss their potential. Exactly. Rusty and Skids could have been amazing, especially Skids. She has a cool power set. And great pants. Yeah, but alas, it was never to be. On the upside, I guess the cast is a more manageable size at this point, so there's that at least. You know who's not a more manageable size, Miles? Nathan Christopher Summers. That's right, he's enormous. He wakes up in prison. He is in a facility on a bed with three scientists and a guard standing over him. Okay, so the way you said that, it sounds like he was on a bed with three scientists and a guard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, the the cuddling room. Oh yeah, you know, it's, it's a good rehabilitation method. It's like, it's oh, thing. I bet you had a sad childhood. Let's hug it out. Let's hug it out, Nathan. What people don't know is that, so you know how Cable has to use all of his powers to keep the T.O. virus at bay, even though that wasn't actually written into the story at this point? Mm-hmm. Those powers are only recharged by spooning? You heard it here first, folks. I was thinking when we first started this tangent, we would cut it out, but no, no, I think it has to stay. You're just imagining Cable spooning everyone now, aren't you? He looks so comfy. He's smiling for the first time. No, I think he'd be really serious about it. Oh, well, I think his glowing eye just sort of glows a little heart symbol around itself. Cable wakes up alone in a bed in an institutional facility. He is being watched over by three scientists and a guard. Okay, see, that's clearer. And he decides after a moment of consideration that he is maybe a little bit in over his head and he might possibly just a tiny bit need a team at this point. Face facts, old man. They're a well-balanced, highly sophisticated army. Swallow your pride and get some help. Because right now, timing's everything. And you can't bring them down alone. I like how Cable talks to himself. I like the idea of him narrating every single thing he does. Almost out of toothpaste. I could probably get more out if I didn't just squeeze from the middle of the tube all the time. Damn it, Ascani upbringing. I never got a chance to be a child. I never got a chance to learn. And the next time we see him, he is in leg irons being interrogated by Freedom Force. He has also managed to rebuild his hand somehow out of something, uh, stuff or possibly leftover coherence, since there's clearly a bunch that didn't make it into this story. I kind of like the idea of Cable as a MacGyver figure. Like, that makes sense to me. I mean, he's a resourceful dude. I like the idea of him scrapping and repurposing, like, plot elements and story structure and continuity. And that's why it's so fucked up around him, because he literally, like, metabolizes Oh my god, like, he literally metabolizes logical causality. Oh man, that's an incredibly powerful mutant power. I can see why Mr. Sinister wanted to genetically engineer him. That would actually be a super neat power, and that would be a super cool thing to play with. But I'm lying completely. So he's being interrogated by Freedom Force, and uh, Freedom Force, Crimson Commando specifically, is questioning him, and he demands, We have reason to believe that the Mutant Liberation Front, Rusty Collins, and Skid Blevins were working in concert. You have reason to go to the devil. I know you are, but what am I? Seriously? Okay, if anybody ever is a jerk to you, all you need to say to them is, you have reason to go to the devil. It's an well, no, no, the back. first part of whatever they say. So if they say, you know, I think this, you say, you think go to the devil. 
It doesn't have to be grammatically coherent. Just say it in the no, Campbell it, voice. No, it should not make sense. Also, uh, Skids Blevins? Yeah, her name is Sally Blevins. That's like having, you know, Beast McCoy or Phoenix Gray, which actually those sound kind of awesome, so maybe that's fine. They sound terrific. They sound like they would be the names of, like, renegade detective novel characters. Oh, man. Or maybe professional wrestlers? Phoenix Gray? I don't know. Beast McCoy worked out of the warehouses down by the dock. No one saw much of him these days, not since the lab accident that had left him with blue fur and a chip on his shoulder. Oh, this is what X-Men Noir should have been. Yeah. Oh, man, if they ever make another one. Another thing that Cable learns here, aside from, you know, how to do awesome comebacks, is that apparently the Mutant Liberation Front wasn't just blowing up energy research facilities. They had another reason for being there. They were stealing a material called tritium, which is used in hydrogen bombs. Cable acts on this information by faking sick to lure in the guards. Um, How does that work every time in stories? Like, they always say maybe he's faking, but they do it anyway. I know. I I don't know. And why do they not have any kind of safety protocols for dealing with that? I'm pretty sure actual prison systems do. Well, I know if I ever want to escape from prison, that will work 100% of the time. Only if you're a protagonist. Oh, I Um, hope I'm a protagonist. He uses this to lure over the guards, only to shoot one in the neck with a makeshift blowgun and pour acid on Cable's leg irons and uh, punch the other guard. He had been uh, concealing the blowgun and the flask of acid in his fake arm because I don't know where you keep your blowguns and flasks of acid, but apparently this is Cable's MO. So when they took away his weapons and patted him down, they obviously didn't find these things. I mean, at least that one time in Avengers Arena when Deathlock had got captured, the people had the good sense to take her arm away. And this is why. That's right. Maybe they read this story. So Cable escapes, and there's a great big fight, and he's incredibly brutal and does a lot of stuff that really should have resulted in Freedom Force actually dying, but it's not that kind of comic. Yeah, he definitely actually sets one of them on fire. And sure then does. dumps them all into, I think, the East River. Well, yeah, because there's a big helicopter chase as he hijacks a helicopter and then they go in their helicopter and then everything gets blown up because Cable has bazookas at all times. Well, and Freedom Force hits Cable's helicopter with a rocket. So everyone shoots each other. He climbs out of the water, followed by an irate Freedom Force. Now, in the meantime, we've been missing some new mutants because when Moira McTaggart showed up to check in with Rain, most of the characters were gone. Where were they? They were going shopping. That's right, Sam, Bobby, and Boom Boom have headed to Tiffany's to buy a going-away present for Rain. After gawking at $2,000 earrings, they end up buying a crystal wolf statue for her, rather than, say, a sterling silver telephone dialer. And they stumble on their way back over Cable fighting Pyro and Blob, just the excuse they've been looking for to fight Freedom Force. It's splitting hairs, but I don't think X-Factor'd want us to stand around while some poor slob gets pulped. And Cable is surprised he recognizes these kids from TV. I mean, he should probably also recognize Sam since guiding Sam into life as an immortal external was a big part of the reason he came back to 1990 at all. But that won't be revealed until later. So, you know, no worries. And then it'll be kind of retconned and uh, maybe he just didn't recognize them without their pouches. That's probably it. You know, everyone looks the same without pouches. So the fight's a little bit weird. And again, we've got some dissonance between the action and the dialogue and narration. Rain's statue is almost dropped, but Cable catches it just in time, and he yells at Sam to activate his blast field just in time to block Super Saber, claiming that he could see Super Saber approaching. What's his reason for it again? Bionic Eye registered the friction he creates as he moves through the air as an infrared streak. Okay, so here's the problem with that. Heat travels more slowly than light. So on one hand, yes, there would be friction when he moved through the air, 
On the other hand, this wouldn't actually let Cable anticipate his course any better. So here's my theory. You know how Vincent Price, like his main skill as an actor, is to make utter bullshit sound totally plausible? Yes. I too have seen The Tingler. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure Cable has that as a secondary mutant power. Or, get this, maybe he's being played by a heavily made-up Vincent Price. Vincent Price's Cable. That little mustache that Vincent Price had all the time? That would look amazing on Cable. I suddenly feel just like this whole new strange affection for Cable. Right? I like him so much more now that he's Vincent Price. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, this part, I actually really like this because Cable is helping the kids use their powers, you know, in these new ways. He's helping lead them to, uh, to live up to more of their potential. He, you know, helps Bobby know to pick up the ground under the blob instead of trying to pick up the blob, for instance. And this right here, as much as Cable was shoehorned into this book, as much as he's totally completely inconsistent with where it's been before, him as a leader for these kids who actually wants them to be adults and have responsibility and not just be protected, I dig that. Yeah, that's cool. So they get safely back to the ship and Moira and Cable recognize each other from allegedly long ago. What we'll learn later is that Moira was the one who found Cable when he first came back to the present and Cable is able to convince her not to take rain. I believe that with special power comes special responsibility. Terrorists are building a bomb that will threaten all on Earth. I need allies to stop them. You'd use these children as your army? Who better? It's their world. Their future. Which is kind of going to be the mission statement of the book going forward, along with guns and pouches. Also, special power, special responsibility. I gotta say, that sounds a little familiar to me. Little bit. Although, man, guns and pouches is now taking me to guns and ships and how differently the Revolutionary War could have ended up if... Lafayette had instead gone to Cable for assistance. Oh, man, I'm pretty sure that's a story that someone's written so the balance shifts. But Moira agrees to let them go, and luckily it turns out her helicopter is actually fine. The one Richter appeared to have destroyed was actually just Warlock and just a delaying tactic. So Moira heads off, and Cannonball immediately likes Cable. Richter is less sure. And that's because, as we will soon find out, Cable killed Richter's father. What? So it turns out that Strife, who looks identical to Cable, actually killed Richter's father. But this is going to be a slow burn mystery for a surprisingly long time. We'll just know that Richter hates Cable, and Cable doesn't know why and doesn't really care. And man, if people just had conversations, so many problems could have been resolved. Once again in X-Men, that remains true. You mentioned when we were talking about this this morning, that a thing that really struck you about Cable as we were going back through is that he is a teenager's definition of cool in a book about teenagers that's basically drawn by a teenager. I don't know if Liefeld was actually in his teens at this point or if he was in his very early 20s, but I'm going to go ahead and say that the teen years last till 23 anyway, so we'll say he was a teenager. Yeah. And so that actually softens me on this arc a bit because, like I said, I started out with a very negative opinion of it, but the fact is, characters especially like Cannonball, Sunspot, and Boom Boom, of course they would love this guy. He's this badass older guy who clearly seems to know what he's doing and also totally respects them and trusts them to know what they're doing. You know, they're just getting out of having been under Magneto's control. He was always trying to protect them from themselves. Xavier wasn't much better in that regard. And for the first time, here's someone treating them like adults. Right. He's the cool uncle who lets you play with his guns and try his beer. Pretty much exactly that, but with more robot parts. Well, I mean, depending on the uncle, I suppose. I mean, I don't know how your family does it, but that wraps up, I think, Cable's first appearance and his connection to the New Mutants. Next time we see them, he's going to be as that member of the team. 
yeah, this book has been completely transformed by this arc, both in terms of the art and also in terms of the book's plot. It's never going to be the same. Honestly, comics in general are never going to be the same. I cannot overstate how influential Rob Liefeld coming onto New Mutants was. It just changed everything. It ushered in the 90s probably more than almost anything else. Kind of feels like an appropriate point to start the new year. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. And with that, you've got questions. Lunal asks on Twitter, how did Cable die in Second Coming but come back in X-Sanction a year later just in time for AVX? Okay, so at the end of the Second Coming crossover, Cable takes X-Force into the future to shut down a bunch of Sentinels who are going to travel back in time to wipe out the X-Men in the present, and he sacrifices himself to hold open the portal so X-Force can get back and survive, and thus he blows up real good. I mean, we see him explode. It turns out he wasn't actually killed. The parts of him that blew up were largely the robot parts. And the rest survived. He was sent through the exploding time portal to yet another post-apocalyptic future where he met his old buddy Blacksmith, who told Cable that the Avengers capturing Hope Summers would basically end the world. It would lead in this dark future. So Cable let the techno-organic virus take hold just long enough to build him a new robot arm and give him enough time to live to take down the Avengers, which didn't go well. But hey, at least Hope was able to purge Cable of the techno-organic virus, and everything worked out pretty much okay. So the short version is... When you have a character like Cable, even actually blowing him the hell up, it'll just send him through time again. That's basically how he works. I mean, we talked to Dennis Hopeless about this. Cable is effectively invincible. Adam Reck asks on Tumblr, Hi Jay and Miles, is there any aspect of Cable's design or power set that you think could be removed? Some examples, light up eye, scarred eye, metal arm, time travel telekinesis, without losing the essence of what Cable is all about? Or is Cable only Cable as a result of his many parts? I think you have to start Cable with that stuff. I don't think he has to keep them long term, but I think they have to have been part of him and part of his formative experience to some extent. One of the things, you know, I talk about X-Men and disability and all of that stuff a lot. And something I think people forget about Cable because his robot arm is cool is that his cyborg parts are basically a combination of a disability and adaptive technology. They're the result of growing up with this incredibly deadly disease in a world that was entirely based on survival of the fittest, being disabled and having to hide his disability to survive. You see that a lot, actually, in Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, like Gene teaching him to mask his cybernetic limbs when they go into new towns, because otherwise they'll be stopped, he'll be taken away. Likewise, I think being powerful but not having access to his powers for most of his formative years is a really fundamental component of who Cable is. I think you can change all of those aspects at some point. I think you can take any of those away. And in fact, most of those things have gone away at some point in the life of the character, whether or not they came back. But I think the package is kind of fundamentally formative to who he is as a character. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think Cable's past is the most important part. Where he comes from is more important than where he is at the time. Mm -hmm. For me, I think some of the most important components are the fact that he's been a time traveler with a really shitty past. And so that level of obsession with doing what's necessary in order to prevent catastrophic results, I think that's kind of key to who Nathan is. He has to have that driving fixation. Otherwise, he's just not going to feel like our Nathan. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional entities. Today, I believe I am turning things over to the most bladed man in Marvel, Strife. Wild side, I do not suffer incompetence lightly. The Mutant Liberation Front will prove mutant kind's natural superiority by removing Rusty Collins and Skid's Sally Blevins from the unjust government's custody. You have failed me too often, Wild side. Instead, the technopathic Alan Sells and Master of Combat Tyler Thorstrom shall lead this mission. But first, more pouches. 
Brighter spandex. Bigger hair. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Celebrity proves an uncomfortable fit for X-Factor. As Archangel takes brooding to a whole new level. (laughs) 